Hello, welcome to the Cake Historian Podcast, where we explore history and culture through the lens of cake. I'm your host, Jessica Reed. Thus far, I've begun each episode with a historical snippet or some background related to the guest or subject we'll discuss. Part of the delay in getting this episode live has been my blank-mindedness on what to talk about, what to say to lead into this interview. There are so many subjects I could touch on, from women's rights and consciously or unconsciously ingested societal ideas around marriage, to the history of cake mix and our frankly horrendous diet culture. The thing is, Laura and I talk about it all. We even talk about Hitler. This is a doozy of an episode, my friends. I have two different cakes of the episode, which you'll hear a bit about, and for which I'll provide recipes and links. I was fortunate enough to snag some phone time a few weeks back while Laura was vacationing in Michigan. So let's go ahead and dive right into my conversation with author and historian Laura Shapiro. Talking today with Laura Shapiro, author of the new book, What She Ate. And yeah, hi, thank you for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. I would just love to dive right in. If we could, I would love to hear a little bit about your background, um, how you got into food writing, and how you particularly came to focus on the relationship between women and food. Well, the the focus on women and food, actually the focus on women came first. What happened was I was, uh, after college, I started writing for what we then called the alternative press, which was, uh, you know, it's a realm of of uh, reporting that is now all done on the Internet. But back in the day, we had weekly papers. We were all kind of modeled on the Village Voice. And they were they were great forums for kind of writing whatever you wanted and expressing yourself and uh, very free-form journalism, not a lot of rules and regulations. So it was a great place to start, and and the stakes were very low because we it was really kind of just our friends who ever bought these papers, and so you you didn't have to uh, worry much about what was getting out there. So so I was writing, and uh, I started. It was the seventies, and the women's movement was just kind of flowering. I was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the the women's movement was all over the place, and so I and I was of that age and still. I am a feminist, and uh, I just started following it and reporting on it, and I was deeply involved in the women's movement and thinking about women and, and reading about it all the time. Uh, there is in Cambridge uh, a wonderful library for women's history called the Schlesinger Library. It's now part of Harvard. It, it was part of Radcliffe. It's now part of Harvard. And it's uh, open to the public. And I used to go there and read about women. They also have one of the great culinary collections that is uh, available, again, open to the public today. So uh, so I would go in and, the, you know, the, the cookbooks and the culinary works were right there on, on the open shelves that they then had, right next to the women's history books. So those two things were side by side, and that got me thinking about those two things side by side. So after I had uh, written about women for a couple of years, I was kind of looking around for a book topic. I figured I'd been a journalist for two years. I was certainly ready to write a book. And my mind moved to food because because the connection had been made. That connection had been made in the Schlesinger Library. Right around that time, uh, there was a a woman who was a graduate student at Harvard who was giving uh, she was giving feminist tours of Mount Auburn Cemetery. Mount Auburn Cemetery is a great Boston area cemetery where all the great old 19th century Bostonians went to be buried. It was kind of the place to go to be dead. So everybody was there. And there were so many famous people there that if you you could tour the cemetery and look at all the graves of the famous people, and they would give you a map. And this woman had found out that uh, that the map had all the famous men and none of the famous women. So there it was, you know, sex discrimination beyond the grave. So she <laughs> developed these feminist tours of Mount Auburn Cemetery, and and I took one of them. 
and it was wonderful. That all everybody was there, and there was Fanny Farmer. Well, I knew about Fanny Farmer. I knew that she had been the principal of the Boston Cooking School, which, at the turn of the 20th century, was kind of the the leading cooking school in the country. And uh, and my mother owned a Fanny Farmer cookbook, so I was interested in her. And and we stood there at the grave and. You know, some kind of little connection was made. I went back to the library and started reading about Fanny Farmer, and I thought, this is interesting. This could be a book. It turned out that there was not enough uh, biographical information about Fanny Farmer herself for me to write an actual biography. But what I could see just in kind of reading around her was that she was at the center of of, of a kind of amazing culinary moment in American life. This is late 19th century, early 20th century. It's a turning point. It's when traditional cooking, what you learned at your mother's knee, growing up in your mother's kitchen, uh, the kind of cooking that that was uh, dependent on the seasons and or what you could afford and, and what you had grown up eating, that was the 19th century. And then you kind of turn the corner into the 20th and this corner turn Fanny Farmer was a big part of. And suddenly, everything is getting kind of mechanized and scientific, and and you are, uh, you're cooking according to printed recipes, a lot of published recipes, and measurements, and uh, canned and packaged foods are out there. It's just, it's a whole other way of standing in the kitchen and thinking about food. And it it started to happen right in that time period, and the Boston Cooking School was an important part of it. So so that became my first book, Perfection Salad, Women and Cooking at the Turn of the Century. And and uh, once I once I wrote that, there I was writing about women and cooking. But there had been no cooking, there had been no food in my mind before women. So since then, I've always seen those. I don't see how you can write about cooking without writing about women. There's just no story there, it seems to me. <laughs> and then you wrote some, Something from the Oven was your next book, right? Reinventing Dinner in 1950s America. Yes, this theme of the change in American cooking, which had started in the 19th century, I went on to the 50s, to the 1950s. And this was kind of a surprise for me. This is... Uh, I still remember this. I thought, okay, I'll I'll follow this through to the 1950s. I've got this theme of packaged foods and, uh, you know, the sort of jello salads and TV dinners and things, all, all that stuff. The ideas, if not the actual products, you can see them moving through the turn of the century and now in the 50s. I know we all think of it as the age of of the, the cake mix and the frozen dinner and all that. So I thought, well, I'll do that. It'll be full of all these funny recipes, and, you know, it's, it's this kind of funny, ridiculous moment in American food, and that's what I'll write about. So I go again to the library. By this time, we were living in New York, so I went to another library where I could get women's magazines, bound copies of some of the, the women's magazines uh, through the through the early part of the 20th century and into the 50s. So I was reading Woman's Home Companion and the Ladies' Home Journal and Good Housekeeping. And I'm sitting there in the library turning the pages of these huge bound volumes of things like the Ladies' Home Journal, and I'm looking at the recipes uh, that run in the ads and also the food stories because they're all full of food stories. I'm reading them. I remember this sitting in the library thinking, wait a minute, where's the funny food? Where are all the silly salads and things, the food that we associate with the 50s, where is it? I wasn't seeing that. I was seeing I was seeing it only in a very narrow uh, narrow stratum of, of the food stories, and that was in the advertising, the jello ads, the mayonnaise ads, the, the frozen <laughs> peas ads. They were full of these ridiculous recipes that we associate with the 50s. The Food stories, many of the food stories had real food in them. It wasn't the world's most exciting food, but it was real food with real ingredients. A lot of it was sort of traditional American. It was meatloaf. It 
with some other chicken. And then there were, um, you know, the 50s was the great age, the start of the great age of Americans traveling and, and going to Europe. And there were, uh, there started to be flights to Europe and people would get these package vacations and they'd go to, you know, London, Paris and Rome, that kind of thing. And, and so there were, there were a lot of recipes for kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say dim-witted, but they were simple recipes for famous French dishes, that kind of thing. So you're getting that. You're getting mm-hmm. wine stories. People are going to Mexico. They're writing about Mexican things. You're getting recipes for, you know, chili and things. In other words, it was not this kind of one-dimensional, foolish view of, of American cooking that we all kind of think of the 50s as. It was a much more interesting and deep and and in some ways confusing world of food that I had kind of stumbled into, to my surprise. So I ended up writing quite a different book than the one I thought I had. And this book was about what was really a battleground. The American kitchen became, in the years after World War II, a battleground where... Ordinary homemakers were kind of having it out with the food industry, the food industry, the the makers of Jello and frozen peas and all those things. They are trying like mad to tell homemakers that cooking is too difficult. It takes too much time. It's something that their mothers and their grandmothers did. But those old-fashioned drudges, you know, they just they would they would. But spend hours and hours in the kitchen. You don't have to do that. You're young. You're modern. You can do this quickly. Put all this disgusting work behind you and go to the PTA meeting, you know, and do something wonderful. Go to the movies with your husband. You don't have to spend that, that time cooking because we have done all the work for you. And here it is, you know, the macaroni and cheese in a can. Uh, bouillon frozen. It's just there. So all these packaged things are coming out in a big way after the war, and they're trying to get women to accept them as food, as cooking, and they're having a hard time because it isn't food. First of all, a lot of the stuff was terrible because this is really early years of food processing, and they just they didn't have this yet. They, they really the, a lot of the stuff was lousy, and then the other thing was. It, it wasn't cooking. It didn't count. It didn't come from their own two hands. Everybody knew what cooking was. Cooking was you went into the kitchen, you took, you know, the the the, the piece of raw chicken, or you you took the potato, you took the carrots, and you peeled them. You worked with real food, and it took some time. You had shortcuts because you knew how to cook, so it didn't take forever. And you're an American, so it's probably fairly simple and straightforward. And you cook these things. And it was food, and it took a little time, and you got your hands dirty, and you had really done it. And if people liked it, that was a great compliment to you. And that's that's what cooking was. So, uh, And some people were terrible at it, and some people were good at it, but pretty much everyone did it. And so the really didn't need, even people who weren't that good at it, I think kind of didn't need the food industry to uh, to give them these products. So there was a, the ads were full of it, and there was kind of one message, and, and that was speed, convenience, we are just as good as homemade, we're better because we're kind of cleaner and more sanitary and stuff, and you don't have to cook. Cooking is too difficult. After, so they started talking that way in the, really the late 40s, and they kept on talking that way in the food industry. That was the message of the food industry. Well, it's still with us, but it was huge in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and it took all that time for women to finally get on board. And, uh, you know, then other, other social and cultural things pitched in, uh, a lot of uh, women had had less time. It was uh, not so much from just going to work, but but home schedules became much more uh, clamorous and busy. You spent a huge amount of time schlepping your children to their football practice and their ballet lessons and things. Uh, so there there was there was less time in the kitchen for everyone, and uh, and the products got better. You know, it got 
to be that you could uh, you could open a a can of soup. Say, well, canned soup had been there a long time, but you could open a can of baked beans, and you know it was fine. It was fine. You really did not have to. You, the real ones that you made were going to be better, but the canned ones were okay. So this idea of good enough was one of the leading things that the food industry had in its favor. This stuff was good enough. And gradually, <laughs> gradually, home cooking never went away. It never died. To this day, people do home cooking. But these products that, that used to be kind of on the outskirts of the meal, you know, everybody used ketchup. Many, many people used pancake mix. Some of these things, Jello. Everybody made Jello. A lot of these things had been around many, many years, and they were definitely part of the American pantry. But they were kind of on the outskirts of the plate. Well, they started moving in to the center of the plate. So you had, oh, you know, you might have frozen Swiss steak in the middle of the plate, packaged mashed potatoes, those things. But it took a long time for that to happen. So it's a great compliment to the hardiness of the American home cook that she held out against the food industry <laughs> for a really long time. <laughs> now, of course, one of the most famous, in my opinion, packaged uh, food products is the cake mix. And I, I remember when I read something from the oven, I was I was pretty new to all this stuff and, and wasn't aware, as you explained, that in the early days of cake mixes, uh, they did not do well. And it was not until they add, they um, required the, the homemaker add an egg, correct? That that's when cake mixes took off because they felt like they were actually making something. Well, that's um, that's kind of part of the story, but I tried to uh, tell it in a in in a kind of more full context in the book. Oh, of course. <laughs> the, um, the 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 egg theory is very it's it's well known now but it's not really the whole story what happened was that as cake mixes came onto the market in the late 1940s they um they just were well well at first people were very excited about it because baking a cake is is uh it's it's chancy especially when uh not everybody had a perfectly regulated oven say and um, I mean, we, we were long, by the 1940s and 50s, we were long past the time when you had to sift the, the or, or go through the flour for, you know, weevils and things and, and sift the sugar because it was so lumpy. And we didn't have to do those things anymore. But baking a cake, there was always a huge emotional high stakes to, uh, to, to turning out a perfect cake. And you could... People did seem it was a challenge. It was an emotional challenge, really, more than a technical challenge, and people were nervous about their cakes. So cake mixes did have a market in the very beginning. I mean, they, they not huge, but because they were new and a little weird, but people were interested, and for a while there, up until maybe the very late 40s, early 50s, they sold they were doing well. I mean, you know, they started from nothing, and, and then people started to buy them. And then they kind of came to a halt. By the early 50s, sales were not increasing. People were using, some people were using some mixes. They were also doing home baking from scratch. Cake mixes were not taking over the universe the way that the food companies thought that they would. So they started asking themselves why and there are a lot of uh, stories in the trade press you know why weren't women paying attention to this great new thing for one thing a lot of them weren't very good but but there, there were there were other problems going on so uh there was a uh, a social cultural psychologist who did a lot of consulting work for the industry in in many fields and also is the food industry named Ernest Dichter, and he took on the cake mix challenge, and he did some studies and did a lot of interviews, and he tried to figure out why women didn't want to use cake mixes, and he came up with this egg idea. He said, he told the manufacturers, he said, look, leave out the dried eggs. Put it in the in the instructions that you have to add a fresh egg to the mix, and this will turn it around, and women will feel like they're really doing something. This is the work." 
from their own hands. They have truly baked this. They didn't just open a box, and that will turn things around. And in the later 50s and 60s, sales of cake mixes did increase very much, and the product became much more widely accepted. So this idea that the cake, the, that the egg theory had, had done the trick became very popular, and especially Ernest Dichter used to claim that he had turned around cake mixes. It's not <laughs> exactly that simple. The fact is the manufacturers, uh, you know, Pillsbury and General Mills, the, the big flour companies that were the first big manufacturers of cake mixes, they understood from the beginning that dried eggs in the mix were a problem. The one thing that was wrong with the early cake mixes was that they tasted kind of eggy, and it was from these dried eggs. And and they themselves had been wondering, not from a let the housewife do more work point of view, but from a quality of the cake mix point of view, should we have people add fresh eggs or should they we go with the dried eggs? And they, in fact, had done, one of the companies did, I think it was Pillsbury, they did a survey in which they asked people, I think shoppers, and, you know, do they prefer the cakes where you just add water, the dried egg mixes where you just add water, or the fresh egg mixes? And the responses were very, very consistent. Everybody said that the fresh egg mixes made much better cakes. They also said that they were more inclined to buy the dried egg mixes. In other words, it was totally <laughs> They could not figure this out. They didn't even try to figure it out. Pillsbury went ahead with dried eggs. General Mills, Betty Crocker went ahead with fresh eggs. And between the two of them, they had the market pretty much sewn up until uh, Duncan Hines came in. He, I think, was fresh eggs, and and he. But there were other reasons why. Apparently, those Duncan Hines mixes in the fifties were were very good. He managed to get a texture, I think, that everybody kind of thought was great. So he became very popular, or his products became very popular. But the point is, the eggs had gone back and forth. This Ernest Dichter did not invent the egg idea, but he did have his he did have his uh, finger on the pulse in another way. Women did want to participate more in the act of baking that cake, and I think it wasn't the egg so much. What turned it around was frosting. What you started to see in the 50s was a, that a lot of the ads for cake mixes and for flour put a huge new emphasis on frosting and decorating the cakes. That was the way to sell them. And a lot of the ads basically say right out, they say, look, the cake itself, not so important. You can even buy it. I mean, just get a plain cake, make it from a mix, do whatever you want. But here is how to make it yours. Here's what you do. Here's how to create a, you know, a Plymouth plantation on your cake. Here's a football field. Here's Versailles. Here is what you do. And in these directions, it would take you like a week to do these things. But And you'd have to make the frosting and color it and, you know, buy things for it. And people did it. And that was, that was it. That was the way to personalize the cakes. And you started seeing these very elaborate, you know, birthday cakes for your children that are going to, you know, it's it's a rodeo or it's, it's I mean, they just had all of these elaborate cakes and, and, and then frosting mix took off. So you could... You could make the cake in two seconds. You could make the frosting in two seconds. And then you could spend three days decorating it. And then that, <laughs> was, that was the deal. That's, I think that is what really sold cake mixes. However, that's just my theory. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sounds like a good theory, though. <laughs> now, this is a good, this is good because this leads me into um, talking a little bit about you for a second and how you wrote in the afterward to what she ate. You said, before I got married, I was so viscerally opposed to cake mixes. I was certain I would be struck by lightning if I ever so much as reached for one. And then you go on to describe reaching for one. Um, But you also had sort of an unusual, you were in India, I believe at the time. Uh, Would you, could you talk a little bit about your, um, 
Yes, that's your, um, I mean, you write about food, but are you're not really, are, you don't really do, you don't write recipe books. You, you, you write about women and food, but recipes really aren't a part of, um, the work that you do. Can you talk a little bit about you? Yeah, no. Right. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> no, I, I don't write recipes. I, uh, I, you know, that is a skill unto itself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of it. But I've always, you know, cooked at home. My mother was a wonderful cook. And in fact, and she always baked from scratch. She made, she made everything from scratch. She tried new things. I remember she tried these instant mashed potatoes, but basically she was a wonderful scratch cook. And the only time we ever saw cake mixes in the house was she took a cake decorating course once and uh and they had to she just needed practice cakes so she would she would she would make a cake mix cake and then and you know do this elaborate frosting that she had learned how to do so so I would see them in that but no I grew up thinking the cake you make cake the very word cake is something that comes from the flour and the sugar and the baking powder that is right there on the counter and and that is how you do it and in fact all the cooking I did was always very simple, really straightforward, regular old cooking that you just do. I would cut out recipes from the newspaper and, and just do them. And that's what I did. And I never thought twice about it. I liked it, and it just wasn't – I wasn't too stressed. It, it, I just cooked. Well, then I got married, and and I had thought, because I was a as I say, these were in the years. It was the 70s. It was, I had been deeply involved in the women's movement. So it was kind of an issue whether or not to get married. But I thought, and my husband thought, that, uh, you know, you, there's, there's nothing wrong with marriage per se. It's what you make of it. If you're going to be a slave in your own home, then that's what you've made of it. And and we weren't going to do that. And, yes, I would cook, and he would do other things, and we would have a kind of equal feminist marriage. And in in fact, it has worked out that way, and it's been just fine. But to my astonishment, and this is, it's practically overnight. One day, we're living in this apartment in Cambridge, and I'm cooking my little meals, and we're eating them, and it's just fine. Two days later, we are married, living in our little Cambridge apartment, and I'm a wreck about cooking these meals. Suddenly, no, nothing seems good enough everything everything has to be more american more more uh women's magazine i didn't know how to be married i mean i did but i focused it all on on uh, cooking i didn't know how married people cooked why should it be any different from how single people cooked this was neurosis <laughs> this is wedding neurosis and it was all came out in the food i just thought i'm i'm a wife what on earth does that mean what have i done what have i given up what have i made of myself as a feminist i just had this fear of wifedom and it came out in the food so i would go to the supermarket and and or look through these recipes women's magazine recipes in a million years i never looked at those things they're all called you know uh pork chop bake well i didn't, I didn't do that i made things like pesto i didn't make pork chop bake i still can't even tell you what it is but it's the kind of thing they had in women's <laughs> magazines so then i thought oh i should make pork chop bake or sloppy joes or these things Anyway, in this frame of mind, uh, my husband is a scholar of uh, comparative religion and Hinduism, the, the religion of North India, the major religion of North India, one of the major religions of North India. And he um, he spends, over the years, he spends a lot of time in India, and he was heading off to India to do the research for his dissertation, and I would go with him. So there we would be living in India. I thought maybe I would write and read books, and I didn't know what I would do, actually, study Hindi, and and there we would be. So, And I had actually been to India before we were married. I met him over there. I mean, I flew over there to, to spend some time with him before we were married. So I had been there. I knew a little bit what it was going to be like in our life together there. But, uh, but that was before. 
before we were married. So now we're married. I'm going over there as an American wife. And I did know this one thing about being married, and that was that you had to make dinner. This is all I knew about being married was that you made <laughs> dinner. I, I was positive of that, really. So so I thought, okay, I'm going to be there in India. I'm going to be making dinner. What on earth am I going to cook? Now, I knew that people in India ate Indian food. I knew this. I had been there. I had seen it. As a matter of fact, I loved the food. I had eaten in people's homes, the homes of Indians and the homes of actually American friends who were wonderful Indian cooks. I had, um, uh, we'd eaten in many kinds of, of restaurants. We'd eaten a lot of street food in India. I loved all of it to this day. The, the, the many cuisines of India, and you know, there's millions of them. I love them all. There's hardly a meal. I've been to India a number of times. I can't even think of a meal I haven't loved from the very simplest to the snazziest. So, you know, you would think, oh, well, okay, so go and do Indian cooking. It never occurred to me. It did not occur to me. <laughs> that wasn't... <laughs> It's not what American wives did. They didn't cook Indian food. I, I or so I, this was my wild imagining. So I go to the supermarket and I shop for food to take to India. This is insane. This is really insane, but I did it. <laughs> I, I bought, I bought cake mixes as I, as you, you you said, I, in a million years, it was against my religion to use a cake, cake. I bought them. I bought these things called Nutri Nuggets, which are, um, we were going to be vegetarians. We, we were living in a temple complex, in a flat that was in a temple complex, and uh, the, the Hindus, practicing faithful Hindus all around us, and, and my husband's working with them, and he's friends with them. They're, of course, vegetarian, so we too would be vegetarian vegetarian, which was fine. I just didn't know how to do it. So I, and I thought, uh, okay, I need these Nutri Nuggets. Nutri Nuggets are like soy. It's, it's dog food, really. I mean, it isn't. It's dog food for humans. <laughs> they're these soy things <laughs> and you, you soak them and then you, they're like fake meat that you put into stuff. So I, oh, well, I'll, I'll do, I'll do this. And I, I just, I bought, I knew that they had butter and cooking oil in India. I knew those as fats, but I thought, oh, no, no, I have to bring my own. I did not try to travel with butter. No, I didn't try to do that, but I bought <laughs> these vats of Wesson oil. And I was going to, I bought cans of tuna fish. I thought, you know, well, it's true we were going to be vegetarians, but we might just want some tuna fish. I got... um you know, bouillon cubes uh, in for soup and stuff. I just bought all these things that in a million years I never, ever, ever would dream of cooking with in my, like, sane, pre-married life. So we go to India, and I unpack all this ridiculous food in this little town <laughs> and stock our kitchen with these things. It's an extremely... um a uh, simple kitchen. There's a, a a gas hot plate that I cooked on. There's no real oven. There's kind of a a metal box that you could put on the hot plate. And but I was never very good at baking anything in it. And so farewell cake mixes and um, <laughs> and the, and and no refrigerations, which meant that you had to go to the bazaar out to the market every day, which was right nearby and get the fresh things and the milk and the butter every day. So this, I would I would try to make these horrible American packaged food, this glop, this horrible stuff. I would, here we are in India surrounded by some of the world's loveliest cooking, and I am making these horrible things because I thought that's, I thought that's what food was for me or for us. I somehow wasn't making the connection. It's nuts. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't been awakened or or drawn back to to like real life by the fresh food in the market. You know, if you 
go shopping in this kind of small town. It wasn't a village. It was it was an actual town, and they had they had um, uh, a big big market, big outdoor market. Uh, but the but the small one that was right near us. That's the one I went to every day. And the women are sitting on the ground, and they're surrounded with just a few things that they brought in that day all just as fresh and beautiful and lovely as you can imagine. The eggplants and the carrots and the squashes and the, they're just, they're lovely. And and there was a little stall where you could get milk and yogurt, the best yogurt I had ever tasted. And there was a little shop where you could buy spices. And of course, they're fresh, aromatic, wonderful spices. In other words, everything you could buy in this market was nicer by far than anything I had ever seen in the United States. It was just mm. simple, fresh, delicious, wonderful produce and dairy. That's what there was. And you just bought whatever they had that day. So I would do that. And I was studying Hindi, so I would do it in Hindi. You know, it would take me like 10 minutes to say, may I have half a kilo of tomatoes, but they patiently listened to me <laughs> try to say this. <laughs> and the, so their human interactions, you know, to, in Hindi, my little baby talk Hindi was, that's what I was using. I would bring this stuff home and after a while, I regained my senses. You almost have to. The the The, the food was so good. Even I could see way better to cook up these carrots and then make something with nutri-nuggets. I mean, really. <laughs> Come on, it was not a contest. And I had brought, I had brought with me a, um, uh, an in, the Time Life uh, Foods of India. Time Life had this big international series of cookbooks and, and I had the India one and it actually was, was quite good. They they did a huge amount of of real work putting out those recipes. Okay, they maybe they were not the world's most uh, rock bottom authentic, but they were very good for that day and age. And because it's time life, and they have teams of people testing the recipes, they really worked. And that's what I needed. I needed recipes that worked. So I would follow them, and I would make you know, chickpeas, and, and I would do some of these very simple vegetable preparations and things. And it, it was, I was not a very good cook of, of any of those things, but it, you know, as you know, if you have the ingredients and you, you don't ruin them, it's going to be fine. So we were eating much better because it was real. And that, that uh, slowly, over over weeks and months, I became the kind of wife that I really am that is a regular person who is a feminist who happens to be married. That's what I was <laughs> and to this day <laughs> am. And I I came to my senses, literally. My senses began to operate, not my mania, and I was uh I was saved. <laughs> so so I was never I am to this day not a, a brilliant cook of Indian food, but when I can get a simple enough recipe and by the ingredients, it's delicious. It really is great food, and and I it was very important to me to be able to master it, even in a tiny, tiny way, because it was real. It was the real food. So in terms of cake, I I think I gave those mixes away to other Americans. We knew a number of American missionaries who had uh, for they had cooks and they had ovens. I think that I made gifts of those cake mixes to those people <laughs> didn't try to do it. And I've since then never been haunted by a cake mix in my own home. <laughs> Once we got back to the United States, I, as I say, I was restored to myself. So cake mixes <laughs> never, never again showed up at home. <laughs> and I love that because it, it's so much of... I guess your food story, at least a, a small, even a small portion, because it was later, you know, when you were married and such and you were in India. But that, that can lead into a bit to your new book, What She Ate, the story of six remarkable women and the food that tells their stories. And I love this book so much. It's, 
I mean, it's it's very, you know, right up my alley to look at <laughs> life through the lens of food. Of course, that's kind of what I do as well. But it's just such a great book. And I'm so fascinated with the women that you chose. Could you talk a little bit about why you chose the six women that you chose? And then first, I'll, just, I'll say who they are really quickly before you, you, um, you have Dorothy Wordsworth, Rosa Lewis, Eleanor Roosevelt, Ava Braun, Barbara Pym, and Helen Gurley Brown. Um, so you don't have to go and blank about your process. I'm just curious why those six women? Well, you know, in a way it could be any six women on earth because we all relate to food in some way. What I needed for this book were women who uh, who had left a record. That was really one of the prime things. I mean, they had to be women who interested me. That was first, uh, first, interesting women. But then they had to be interesting women who had left some kind of written record of what they ate or how they felt about food, not necessarily the cooking because uh, many of them didn't cook or some of them didn't cook. But... Uh, but they had to have left diaries or letters or maybe written something. I had to be able to find out what they had eaten or what they had cooked or or, or how they lived with the food around them. I just needed to be able to do the research. And that was kind of a, a, a you know, a narrowing process right there. Not many people, first of all, not many women leave diaries and letters. The... The ones who do are literate, so they're probably middle class. I mean, looking at the long history of it, they're going to be literate. They're going to be middle class, and then they're going to have some family, or they'll be notable enough so that the letters and things are saved, and you're going to find them in libraries or published. So it was really, it was women who had interested me, and Dorothy Wordsworth and Barbara Pym were the British novelist. Barbara Pym, those were two women that... um, I knew they had a relationship with food that was interesting, and I had kind of tucked that information away in a filing cabinet somewhere and thought, you know, someday I'll deal with this. And and this was obviously the chance to deal with that. Eleanor Roosevelt, I had read something about the food in the Roosevelt White House that said how terrible <laughs> it was, famously terrible. And I oh, thought yeah. that. That that's interesting. I, I thought maybe I'll do something about that someday. So it was a lot of these women just came right out of my filing cabinet. They were they were women that I thought you know there's something there. Maybe I can pull something out. And when I got the idea for this book, I thought now this is the moment. <laughs> and they came right out of my filing cabinet. Yes, I love. Um, and of course, me being me, I look for cake constantly <laughs> in anything that I read. And one one of my I uh, became frankly obsessed isn't the right word but the the pancake dessert you talk about with Eleanor Roosevelt how when she's living separately from her husband that uh, she you say now living on her own and greeted with rapture and respect by crowds around the world she was eager to give everyone her own favorite dessert a pancake dessert. And and you describe it as a large layer cake, or I believe it was her friend or cook that described her it as cook. a large layer, like a large layer cake with maple syrup and maple sugar. And I became obsessed, and I I spent weeks huh. trying to make a pancake cake, as huh. that's described in the book. And I did, I did, and and I don't know if it'll be the cake of the episode, but I think regardless, I'll probably put the recipe up on the website because I did spend so long. Trying to make this, I, I just was obsessed. I was like, "This is amazing!" I, I love the idea of a giant pan, and I, it could be nothing at all like what she ate. But was it more like a, it was this, a, more of a pancake or a crepe? What, what, what did you actually do? It, it, I no, I, I did, I had pancakes. Huh? And you layered I, I, them because yeah. you do crepe cake. Yeah, I, I did these. I did a stack of uh, larger. I think I used like an eight inch nonstick skillet and did like larger eight inch fluffy pancakes and I made like a layer cake and I did a couple versions. One had like lemon mascarpone cream in the middle and and then I was doing like and then I made homemade maple sugar and and uh yeah I went a little nuts. So (laughs) (laughs) all right I didn't know you had done that. What a wonderful thought. I love thinking of that. (laughs) So great. So okay so I made the pancake cake and then um you know, in in the book, 
you have four of the women have, you know, it just pretty seems like pretty pretty normal relationship with food, a lovely relationship with, you know, Dorothy, Rosa, Eleanor, and Barbara kind of have this. I mean, it's not perfection, but then I was super struck, especially with regards to cake, with the sections on Ava Braun and Helen Frilly Brown because, well, I mean, with Ava Braun, it, she wasn't the cake eater. Hitler, I was, I just, I don't know, there's something fascinating to me that Hitler loved cakes as much as you say that, quote, even in the bunker as the Russians approached and his own death loomed, he was stuffing himself with cake. And I'm just, I don't know, there's something about the idea of Hitler and cake that just so strange to me. And, but really, you know, of course, you're talking about Ava Braun and how she, she didn't eat you say she refused to share Hitler's obsessions, but she she thought his vegetarian, his dietary regimen was disgusting. And can you talk a little bit about Ava Braun's relationship to food and Helen Greeley Brown's relationships to food in that they sort of didn't eat food or didn't really right. avoided food in a way? <laughs> right. They were the And they avoided cake, definitely. Yes, they were the two major. They were the two major dieters in the book. And uh, you asked about how I chose the women. I looked at at uh, some other women. As often as not, the theme that you see is dieting. So, and I didn't want to fill this book with dieters. So, so, uh, so I just had these two. So Ava Braun, uh, she. Um, she was always worried about her figure, so she tried to eat very lightly. And uh, you, you might think that she would have adopted the vegetarian diet just just for that purpose. But Hitler's diet really appalled her. It was the only thing about Hitler or his life or his work or his uh, his politics and his his uh, readiness to commit mass murder and genocide, none of that bothered her. It was only what he ate that uh, threw her off. So she refused to go along. When they were when they were at uh, at the dinner table, she often in the entourage his entourage would be there. There were, there would be sort of Nazis and their wives around the table and Eva was presiding as the kind of hostess and Hitler's meal was always brought out separately. It was prepared in a little separate kitchen by a vegetarian cook, and and uh, that would be brought out, and he would offer these same things to anybody who wanted them, but nobody did, and uh, everybody else was served what was basically bourgeois German home cooking of, of that era, this sauerbraten and meatballs and pork and things like that. And uh, But the thing that Eva herself ate most of was uh, the fresh vegetables and salads. They always, this is in the middle of the war, nobody had access to that kind of thing. But uh, but there were greenhouses uh, at Berchtesgaden, which is the kind of Bavarian mountain retreat where Hitler spent as much time as he could. It was his favorite place. They had greenhouses, and so they had fresh, uh, lovely salad vegetables all year round. And so she had that, and and she had fruit when they could get it, and she she would eat eat lightly at this table. It wasn't um, uh, there was something kind of inhuman about how she went about it. It had to do with her uh, her view of her role, which was to enact the role of the first lady of the Reich, as she called it. She she was she just saw herself as the nation's first lady. Now, they weren't married. They married for about two seconds at the very end of their lives. But uh, Hitler, for for public purposes, did not, uh, did not want to be seen as married or affiliated to, to any woman. He wanted women to be able to uh, sort of fantasize that they were married to him. He, he wanted to be this kind of lonely, powerful figure leading the nation. And so uh, uh, Eva Braun was kept, and also she's, you know, this blonde who's half his age. I mean, they they wanted her totally out of sight. So she was never, uh, she was never seen in public. The only place that she had to, to kind of enact this role 
was the dinner table at a place like Berchtesgaden where everybody around, it was kind of a controlled social world. It was just their closest people and her friends and family would come too. So in that company, she could be seen and she could she could play this role, the woman on Hitler's arm. She dressed for it. She always dressed up. She didn't have anything to do. She would change clothes seven times a day. She she shopped. She would, you know, go to Italy, where it was one of the few places they could go because they were allies. She would go and shop in Italy and spend fortunes of money on the shoes and her dresses and things. And she would change her clothes all day and get her hair done and just be this kind of picture-perfect movie star version, as she thought of it, of of a first lady. And she's doing it at the dinner table. And this is why she belonged in the book, because she is enacting this role in a realm of food. As I say, it was the only place open to her to enact this role. And by the the, the role was extremely powerful in the realm of food. These are Nazis sitting around the table. When they've come in to lunch or dinner, they've just been signing the orders for you know, this or that Eastern European village to be emptied out of its Jews and everybody sent away to be slaughtered. This is what they're doing all the time. And then they come into lunch. And the how do they live with themselves? Well, one way they live with themselves is to is to see the table as this kind of transforming place that makes everything okay. And this lovely woman is is casting a kind of feminine glow over the table. Food, as we've read a million times, this is the thing that brings us together. Food is about love. Food is about family. Food makes everything okay. Well, that worked for the Nazis, too. They could go there and they could just feast on their cause. They're all of the same mind. They're, and it's, it's all kind of sheds sheds its horror and is transformed at the table. They're sharing food and they're talking about it and you know, it's every day is Thanksgiving there. And and she is the woman at the table is shedding this kind of feminine, uh, transforming quality all over the dinner. That's how I see it. That's how I see it. That's how I see her role. Food has this power and it exerted that power on the worst people who lived. It's, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not all good news in the food world. It is not all good news, and, and that is what was going on there. So, And then Hitler, of course, and sweets. This was a famous thing about Hitler. Uh, people noticed it all the time. In fact, his, his chief aides would see him uh, rushing out of some intense meeting. He'd rush out and start eating chocolates and go rushing back in. And the aide would say, well, are you hungry? Can I bring you something? He'd say, no, 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 I just this is for energy. This is just what I need. He was obsessed with sweets. He uh, That was his. He didn't drink a lot. He didn't drink a lot of alcohol and, and, and was very much against smoking. It was sweets that was his powerful addiction so he uh that's what he did cakes and chocolates and pastries all the time and you know they're constantly baking these wonderful things for Hitler everybody else would get you know day old stuff or the leftovers or something Hitler got all the great Viennese pastries and things that they could bring to him so it's you know the whole thing of food, food in the three. It just turns over everything that we love about food and want to believe about food. And we who are food writers think about this all the time about the healing powers of food and the it's something like cake and pastry, which they're treats, but they're they're powerful treats. These are the things that truly make us happy and. And this this is their role. This is what they do in that context, in this context of total evil, destruction, blood, and death. So, so that was the Ava problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, it takes emotional eating to a whole new level. <laughs> like, yeah, well, you uh, know, one of the one of the reasons 
I wanted to work on this book was that I wanted to see the underside of food. I mean, I'd been a food writer. I was at Newsweek for years and writing about food all the time. And and I uh, I told the food is love story many many times. It's it's the main thing you tell when you're you know American yeah. journalist writing about food. Food is always about love and family and care. I thought that you know what other things are going on at the dinner table. It's not all that. I want to. I want to get below. I want to see what other stories are coming out at the dinner table. What other kinds of things are going on? So that was that was one of the reasons to uh, to look at one of the least appetizing dinner tables in all of history. <laughs> well, it's definitely a, a prime example of food as as a symbol of class, as a symbol of power. Um, you know, the ability of them to have. So much when so many millions had so little, and it's yeah, still, yeah. I, I mean, in many ways, uh, oh gosh, okay, this could be a whole nother, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and, and, uh, so, so we can move on to, you know, Cosmopolitan and Helen Grady Brown, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, in so many ways, the world we still live in, which is, you know, sweets are these things, cakes are these things to be lauded, and they're beautiful, and everybody loves them, but don't eat them. Yes, you can, exactly. You can and like them, but don't eat them, because you're a woman, yes. and you need to be thin. Yes, and that, of course, <laughs> And that was something that sounds like. Sorry, I'm sorry. Please, yeah. Go on. Yeah, no, no. So, so Helen Gurley Brown was really the dieter supreme. She kind of lived by this rule for women. Uh, there were really two rules. Women could do anything. Anything, any career you wanted, any job you wanted, any kind of sexual freedom you wanted, yes, it's yours. Go for it. That's one rule. And the second rule is you must always be attractive to men. You must always attract a man. You must have one or more men in your life at all times or otherwise you don't count as a woman. So it's total freedom and ambition and anything you want on the other hand and then complete prison of uh, traditional femininity on the other hand. And food, of course, is a big part of that. You could not possibly attract a man unless you were bone thin. And she was really crazy. I would say literally crazy on this subject. She herself was probably anorectic. She uh, she joked about it, in, in fact. And weight, she, she she was very underweight. And people who saw her uh, on the street or who knew her, knew her, uh, especially in her later life, they were just appalled at how skinny and bony and kind of terrible she looked. And she refused to believe that. that she said, they're just jealous because I'm so thin. So, uh, so she had a very classically screwed up view of her own, of her own body. But this was what she uh, filled the pages of her books and magazines with was uh, dieting advice. Any insane diet you ever thought of, that was great as far as she was concerned. Any kind of diet drug, she said, don't listen to the doctors who, who will try to warn you away from this stuff. Sometimes you really, you need a little drug to help you repress your appetite. So for heaven's sake, take it. It was really an awful message. And uh, and as I say, so much else in her worldview was very, very feminist in terms of women working, women taking positions of power, birth control, abortion, all that stuff, equal pay. She was right there uh, speaking out on all of it, but um, but not not um, nothing that would ever suggest that. Uh, attracting a man was not the most important thing for any woman to do. And the other thing that she could never take seriously was the uh, issue of sexual harassment, which was starting to uh, come to the surface during the women's movement years of the kind of 70s and 80s. And uh, a lot of the women's magazines at that time were taking this seriously. Helen Gurley Brown just wouldn't. She she just thought the greatest thing in the world was woman and man in bed under any circumstances. It was always good, and she refused 
to sort of back away from that. Somebody once asked her, what if, well, what if you got, you know, pinched or harassed or something? And she, what would you say? And she said, oh, you just turn around and you smile and you sort of say, oh, you naughty thing or something like that. Really, <laughs> it was really, really nuts. But she, um, you know, she had made her reputation and her name in the early 60s writing Sex and the Single Girl. And the whole the whole idea of that book was, yes, women like sex. Women should be able to have sex. They should not be a pariah. They shouldn't be shy of it. If, if this is, you know, you, you, this is your relationship, for heaven's sakes, go and have sex with people. And, uh, and that, it, it created such a wonderful scandal around her in the early 60s. This book was hugely popular. And she loved that. That's how she made her name. So she refused to see anything wrong with sex, sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS, and sexual harassment, anything like that, even even rape. She wasn't really too sure that that was such an issue. She just didn't want anything to diminish the glory of sex, her favorite subject. So, uh, so that was that was her picture. It was a very complicated picture, and and this um, this intense kind of self denial around food. You kind of wonder about her own relationships with men and her the marriage that she said was so happy and glorious and wonderful. Well, you have to kind of wonder about that. I don't know. I just think, you know, food, food, sex, body, it's all kind of one package. <laughs> and uh, yeah, who who knows what her real life was like? I don't know. Maybe she, the two of them were as happy as she always said, but. At any rate, her uh, her influence on how many many readers of Cosmopolitan were looked at themselves in the mirror and looked in their refrigerators. I I think that was a very bad influence. And of course, well, and we live with it to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's how I grew up. Definitely the the model that I grew up with, uh, and the model I now I'm fighting against tooth and nail with the daughter, raising a young woman, um, and also just still battling my own demons related to this. And and not, I mean, I'm not saying Helen Gurley Brown is to blame for all my problems by any means, but (laughs) it is, it is interesting to read her story in your book and, and see kind of a little bit behind this woman who wasn't the only one, of course, at the time, espousing this as the, it's millennia women have there's an ideal, and, and we've tried as a culture to to make women feel like they have to fit some model. But um, if your book shows anything, well, one of the things your book is very good at doing is showing how, how different these women are. And you're, you're telling it all through food, but they're all so very different. Their lives are different. Their stories are different. And that's the thing I think we forget to remember is we lump women into this category of woman. You know, we are women. We're supposed to be thin, pretty, smart, not too smart, but uh, we're all different and and um, we all have our own stories and it's really important, especially as women, to remember that and to take a step back and look at your own story and the story of those women around you, even if, even women like Ava Braun, you know, I mean, her story is as worth reading as the next person and even to get for perspective, you know, to to remain clear about the kind of woman you want to be. And I might be going off on some random strange tangent. I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that um, I think everybody should read your book. I really do. <laughs> All your books. <laughs> All your books. I, I love all your books. I'm a very big fan. I, I've already talked about you multiple times on the show. Um, and, and I probably could go on for hours. Um, but I, I want to thank you so much for, for talking to me today and for sharing your wide wealth of knowledge that you have. And, um, I so look forward to seeing what you come up with in the future, whether it's a year from now or 10 years from now. Um, and um, if, if I would just love to end asking the question I ask my guests at the end of every episode, which is, 
If you could share a slice of cake with anyone alive or dead, who would it be and what would you eat? You know, I uh that has to be my daughter. I um I don't I love cake and I don't want to share a slice of cake with some total stranger even if they are famous. <laughs> and I never I I don't see my daughter enough, you know. She lives in another city and I want her to I want her to come over and I want to I want to go into my uh recipe file and pull out one of these delicious cakes. I've got a there's a peach cake that I'm dying to try. It doesn't look very hard. So, so I and and uh I'm on vacation right now in Michigan and the peaches are wonderful. They are absolutely delicious and this peach cake sounds great. So I want to make that. And then I want the two of us to sit on the deck uh at our cottage here. And and I want to eat that cake with her. She's one of my favorite people on earth. And to share a piece of cake with her would be the biggest treat in the world. That's the show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to your favorite podcast directory. And reviews are especially helpful and welcome. You can find Laura online at laurashapirowriter.com. Links, show notes, Photographs, recipes for the cakes of the episode, etc., can be found on my website, thecakehistorian.com. Original music composed by Alejandro Hernandez. I'm going to end this episode with a quote of Laura's from an interview she did on Food 52's Burnt Toast podcast. It was episode 59. In it, they were discussing uh, biographies, the way biographies are written, And this is what Laura said. We all eat. It is the first appetite we have. I think to ignore the food is to ignore one of the most elemental passions in a life. We never hesitate to pay attention to where someone went to school. We would never hesitate to pay attention to who somebody fell in love with or anything with a dollar sign on it we would pay attention to. Food is all those things. It has emotions, it has the dollar signs, it has the politics, it has the education wrapped into it, it has the love wrapped into it. Food has all those things. When you ignore it, you ignore everything.